It's a fantastic day here on Planet Wealth Tech, and I'm excited to intro this week's episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Iskowitz, and I run a strategy consulting firm that helps broker-dealers, asset managers, RIAs, and their service providers to make better technology and business decisions. And now it's time for another installment of the Winners of Wealth Tech series. This is where I interview leaders and innovators who have blazed their own trail in the wealth management space. A transcription of this interview is also available on my blog at wmtoday.com. That's W-M-T-O-D-A-Y dot C-O-M. So let's get started. This episode of Wealth Management Today is brought to you by Ezra Group Consulting. Broker-dealers are under tremendous pressure to retain and attract new advisors, and their technology ecosystem is a key part. Ezra Group Consulting is your go-to source for building the next generation of advisor and client experiences that will supercharge your firm's growth, increase user satisfaction, and reduce operating costs. If you're a broker-dealer and you want to leapfrog your competition, contact Ezra Group today for a free one-hour consultation and 10% off your first strategic planning project. Go to ezragroup.co, that's E-Z-R-A-G-R-O-U-P.co for more information. And I'd like to welcome to the Wealth Management Today podcast, Sunaina Tujeha, the Head of Strategic Partnerships at, and Emerging Technologies at TD Ameritrade. Welcome, Sunaina. Hi, Craig. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm fantastic. Uh, I'm happy that you could make it. I know we tried a couple of times to get this going and uh, busy schedules and such. And I just wanted to um, relate to very quickly that uh, you're the head of emerging tech at TD Ameritrade. Your, you know, your life is sort of uh, involved with technology. I run a technology consulting firm, yet we spent the last 10 minutes fighting with the, the conference line technology. Uh, yes, as my awesome tech support team reminds me, how are you good with AI and not good with AV? I'm like, well, that's why I have you guys. So, yes. <laughs> and I, I feel the same way sometimes that it just, we have all this technology at our fingertips and, and everything's in the cloud and everything's available. It's never been, we've never had more technology available to us quickly and easily, yet things never seem to work right. <laughs> yes, the, the joys of technology. Yeah, especially with video conferencing and, and, and online conferencing and such. It's just, it's, uh, there's still a lot of analog uh, phone lines and other communication in between us, our, our high tech uh, systems and, and phones and, and computers. Yeah, absolutely. No, you know what? It's interesting. I was having this debate with somebody. I, when I go to meetings, I still have like a little field book. Uh, that I used to make notes and somebody commented, you know, for somebody so digital, I'm surprised you're, you know, taking like notes. I'm like, you know, the more digital my life gets, I find there are aspects of this analog experience that get even more near and dear. And I was reading some articles that actually now show research that there's actually a distinct um, difference between when you make notes on like say a laptop or your phone versus making notes by, by writing and just the way your brain comprehends and, you know, uh, rem and helps you remember things longer. So, yeah, I think, you know, although it may seem quaint, you know, I think we all still get a, a nice dose of dopamine anytime we get that <laughs> handwritten thanks letter. Um, so, yeah, so there's some things that are analog, I think, that are worth saving. <laughs> I would agree. One of my, I have three daughters and one of them, and me being a techno geek, 
that we're all surrounded by technology in my house, she is super into analog. She loves uh, vinyl albums and, and Polaroid cameras. So it's uh, definitely I understand that, the, the, the analog, the tactile feel of things. That's so cool. Good for her. Do you, uh, do you listen to also vinyl records? I don't, but you know, I, I know it is definitely catching. It's coming back in style. I think, I think sometimes what's old is new. You know, my dad has this saying, I'm sure it's not his saying, but you know, I've also many times heard it from him. So I attribute it to him that, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just, uh, it's the same things, just in different iterations for different generations. And I do find it, you know, amusing, but also thrilling in some ways that sometimes, you know, the old things come back and they're more in style and it's vintage and they have this cachet around it. Um, so I personally have not gotten into, you know, vinyl yet, but who knows? <laughs> exactly. I tell my wife, don't throw away your own clothes. They'll be in style again soon. It's funny. I tell my mom all the time. I'm like, don't throw away those, you know, Chanel jackets. I'm sure I'm going to want it one day. So yes. Um, but you, you never know. That, that, you know, your father saying is, is a good one. It leads me into my, my first question. So uh, speaking about how things are old and new and things have changed, you've been at, at TD for 15, almost 15 years now. Is that, is that right? So I've been at TD Ameritrade, yes, about five years. Uh, and prior to TD Ameritrade, I worked for other entities within the TD umbrella. So I started my career in Canada and then worked in the U.S. for TD at TD Bank, America's most convenient bank. And the last five years, I've had the pleasure of uh, being part of the TD Ameritrade team. So how, how do you see things changing since you started in the TD family of companies? This also kind of ties into a little bit of the ESO or the thesis behind, you know, why the Tiger team exists at TD Ameritrade and kind of what we do. And I would say, you know, really, you know, two things, right? One, as you know, we've been uh, nerding out, the volume, the velocity, and just the variety of new technologies coming at us. I, I feel, I, I often say it's equal parts exhilarating and equal parts daunting. And what I mean by that is, you know, every day there's a new technology to understand and learn and probe into. There's a new app to download. There's a new experience to learn. But at the same time, it's also daunting because, you know, at least in our roles, whether it's you know, you in your consulting role or us within TD Ameritrade and, you know, in, in the service of our clients, what we also have to be thinking about is how are we taking these technologies and applying them in a way that are actually meaningful and adding true value in terms of utility and delight, right? So while the insurge of technologies, and listen, we could sit here and play buzzword bingo, everything from AI to VR to crypto and everything in between, while that's exhilarating, the thing that you know excites me more and is the foundation of also what my team does is the second part, which is the focus on consumer behaviors and expectations, right? What continues to both delight me and surprise me is how these technologies are fundamentally and quickly changing consumer norms and societal norms. You know, I, you know, uh, leverage a cheeky story that I'll share that's relatable and kind of underscores this point. It wasn't too long ago, just a matter of a few years ago, when parents were giving this advice or we were getting this advice from parents, which is 
don't ever get into a stranger's car. Just don't do it. If a stranger right. pulls up next to you, you scream, you run, you definitely don't accept a lollipop and you just, just run away. Exactly. And we all heard it, right? I mean, you probably give it to your kids. I know I heard it from my parents. But what did most of us do today or this week? We went to our favorite smartphone. We tapped on our rideshare app of choice, essentially summoning a stranger to come to us. And we voluntarily got in. I mean, I did it this morning. There was no kicking. There was no muss or fuss. Mm -hmm. And I paid them for the privilege of it, right? Well, it's a cheeky illustration. What it does, again, underscore is the the confluence of technologies that went into creating ride sharing was everything from GPS technology to AI to machine learning and, you know, mobile technology. But if you look at the outcome of it is how quickly we've adopted adapted as consumers and how society has shifted in its norms, right? And to us as a business, that's important because these same consumers are current and future clients of TD Ameritrade and or current and future employees of TD Ameritrade. And their expectation of what they get at TD Ameritrade has to be congruent with what they are experiencing, you know, with technology just in their general lives. And so I think to me, that is more of the focal point. I mean, you know, the the other thing is you'll find amusing since you also spend a lot of time on planes like I do. Um, you know, I am bi-coastal and I spend quality time on that Newark to SFO flight. And, you know, you want to watch a bunch of grown adults turn into bratty toddlers, like watch that Wi-Fi drop for five minutes, right? Sure. <laughs> and exactly. including me. And you kind of go a couple of years ago, the notion of a Wi-Fi, you're, you're, you're 30,000 up in the air, you're jetting across at 500 miles an hour, and suddenly this notion of Wi-Fi is expected and needed. How quickly did that happen, right? So to me, it's those behaviors and then how those behaviors transpire and come to TD Ameritrade is really what excites us, but is also that constant Rubik's Cube that we love to keep solving. Yeah, the Wi-Fi story is funny. There's a comedian, I can't remember his name, but he, he tells a quick story about the, he's sitting next to a guy on the plane and the Wi-Fi drops and the guy's like, oh, figures. It's like, you're flying through the air. You're, you're, move, you're going from New York to, to San Francisco in a couple of hours. It took, used to take yeah. months and then half of them died on the way. And you'll be there before watch. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's how expectations have changed. And it, 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 like I said, it gets, people get, to where they expect it, and it becomes a, a, a now it's now it's they don't realize what they didn't have before is suddenly an imperative, and they they can't live without it. That's well said, and I mean even in our own business, I you know I started here five years ago. I vividly recall sitting on on some meetings five years ago where the conversation du jour was still hey, you know, where's mobile technology going to go? How much are we going to lean in? Will our clients use this for trading before they will use their desktop? And that was five years ago. And today, trades on mobile is one of our fastest growing, you know, product service, right? So, you know, and that was just five years ago. So, you know, it just underscores your point about this delta between something being a, something from the delta between nascency and necessity is shrinking, right? Something can go from nice to have to need to have like so quickly. And I think that's why it's incumbent on us to be leaning in and learning about these technologies, experimenting, experimenting with them and starting to apply them in meaningful ways. Because when the iPhone moment hits and every technology goes through that, then you're ready and prepared to serve your clients. 
in the way that they want you to uh, connect with them. Exactly. And that leads me into my next question. So working for a custodian, one, one thing I've seen is custodians have very much changed from when I got into the business where they were sort of, when I, when I started, they were, custodians were all sleepy, sort of big bank-like uh, firms relying on big iron mainframe systems. And now they've got next generation technology product teams like your team, where they're trying to lead the way and, and be innovative in technology. So how do you see that changing the way custody, the, the way the custody business works? That, that's, I think that's a good observation. I think it's specific to TD Ameritrade. I think one of the things that I have found in my time here, very inspiring about this organization is how that disruption is inherent in our DNA. You know, our, our, our CEO often references how we were one of the original fintechs, right? Like if you track back to 40 years ago, you know, it was, the, the, the Ameritrades and the Schwabs and the Scott trades of the world that really disrupted wealth management, right? And same with the RIAs, right? It got, you know, mm-hmm. think of how cumbersome and opaque it was for somebody to enter the capital markets just 40 years ago. That notion of bringing Wall Street to Main Street was really accomplished by these pioneers and, you know, all of the work that the advisor community has been doing since in the last 40 years that has yielded us to where we are today. However, it is also our, you know, belief that we can't stop, that despite all of the technologies that we've just mused about, you know, financial services at large still remains um, complex and can still feel opaque and daunting for many people. And that truly, Craig, is the thesis behind, you know, the Tiger team at TD Ameritrade is how do you tap into and harness the power of these technologies and the partnerships, and we can double click on who these partners are, but do it in a way that we are really breaking down barriers that still might persist in Finster. And by breaking down those barriers, our goal is to empower more consumers in the US and in Asia um, to take charge of their financial futures, right? We want to make the access to the capital markets simpler, faster, easier, but also in a way that the consumers enter those markets in a way that they're confident and empowered and educated. So that really is, you know, the thesis of my team and also kind of track back to your question of, you know, lots of amazing change and progress in our industry, um, but also incumbent on us to never get complacent and kind of keep that uh, in you know metabolism going uh, because there's still a lot of work to do. <laughs> That's true, and you're leading. You're you're following my script perfectly, even though I didn't share it with you. Because my next question. No, is, we're in a mind meld. We're we're in a mind meld through the interwebs. <laughs> mind melding, mind melding. Because my next question was about breaking down barriers, and you you jump right into it. Um, my question around that was. How are you breaking down these barriers? So you want to empower consumers to take charge of their financial futures. I get that. How are you doing that? And how do you see a custodian from the way you provide the services you provide to wealth management uh, and to advisors? How, how do you see your firm breaking down these barriers? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I'll predicate my answer with a little bit of the sausage making of how my team, uh, you know, functions within TD Ameritrade is, you know, even though our uh, fancy title is all about partnerships and emerging technologies, we actually focus on those things at the last. And what I mean by that is one of the first things that my team and I will obsess about is what is the problem that we're solving? Why is this problem worth solving? And are we uniquely qualified, whether it's TD Ameritrade or as a Tiger team, to be solving this problem? And that, you know, through our experience, what we've learned is an important anchor point because it ensures that A, you are, you know, working towards meaningful outcomes. And as I tell my team, it also ensures that we are delivering painkillers and not vitamins, right? Because you want to solve problems so that, you know, the solution is something that you will always want and always want to use. If I miss taking vitamins, yeah, it's not cool, but you know, it's not the end of the world, right? But if I just have a toothache, I'm going to need that painkiller, right? So find those, you know, gnarly problems. Mm -hmm. But then also think about, you know, how can we take this problem and deliver a solution by tapping into technologies or partnerships that didn't exist before that, that, that take the experience to a whole nother level, but do it with speed, right? So in, within our world, we talk a lot about five S's. So what is the problem we're solving? Second, can we solve this problem with scale and sustainability? Because as you know, within our industry, we also have a lot of guardrails we need to be respectful of. Third, which is very near and dear to me, is can we deliver it with speed? You know, the whole imperative of things taking like, you know, the, the multi-year, multi-million dollar projects, that era is over, right? Now it's all about, you know, putting solutions out in the market, like quickly mm -hmm. testing them and it's perpetual beta. And then the fourth S is, solving these problems with symbiotic partnerships. And I'll give you those some examples to illustrate that. And then the fifth one is always be shipping, right? At some point, you have got to take your idea if you absolutely believe in that problem statement and you have to take it out of the lab and put it into the wild and really learn from actual consumers using it, right? So that shipping part is critical. And so based on that, based on that ethos of how we function, couple ways that we have worked to, in our effort, break down barriers. And I'll give you two examples. One is we recently announced in partnership with Apple Pay, how we are completely changing the way that our clients are able to fund their accounts. Um, so a little bit of history. So within our category, the way clients fund their brokerage accounts has remained the same like it was 40 years ago, which is kind of perplexing because we live in an era of all things digital and all things on demand. And yet when I want to fund my account, I still have to write a check, which by the way, who does? Uh, second, it's wire transfers, which aren't exactly the most seamless thing to do, or ACH, which is convenient. However, I don't get access to my money, right? And in times of volatility, when clients want to enter the capital markets directly or through their advisors, Time is of the essence. And here they're going, I put my money in and now I can't activate on it. So that was the gnarly problem statement we were trying to solve because it was a client irritant. It was a business irritant. And it was just general, like from an industry standards perspective, we felt antiquated. 
So we said, why not use digital wallets? It is something that consumers use every day and it's becoming more and more pervasive. And in partnership with Apple Pay just a couple months ago, we enabled for our clients, for TD Ameritrade clients, to literally two tap on Apple Pay that's connected to a debit card, fund an account, which is like seamless. But in addition to that, access your funds instantly. So it's that combination of, you know, seamless and instant funding, which then empowers them to take the action that they wanted to take. And, you know, we're very proud of kind of, you know, bringing that to bear um, at TD Ameritrade, but also kind of, you know, enabling our competitors to join in that journey because ultimately, you know, this is, this is the type of progress I was referring to is this is a barrier. And why is it a barrier? Maybe there was a reason for it decades ago, but now we have new technologies and consumers behaviors are actually a complementary to these types of experiences. So why not break down this barrier and create, you know, entry into the capital markets that is, you know, seamless, but also delightful. Like, you know, uh, the, the experience of two taps, watching your account get funded instantly, and then being able to access it is just amazing. And, you know, as we look at client adoption, just in the couple months that we've launched it, and we haven't even, you know, done our big bang marketing or anything around it, it just has been validating that hypothesis again and again. Um, and that goes back to my earlier point, solve a painkiller, and then you know that will drive user adoption. So that's one. Um, and I have another one around Amazon and how it's helping our clients with accessibility that I'm happy to share, but I'll maybe pause if you have any questions. Yeah, I've got questions. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I really like the uh, Apple Pay idea when it, when it came out. And I look at it from two different ways. One is cool. I'm I'm all about technology, and I'm I'm also a big proponent of cryptocurrencies, and and which is all about digital wallets, moving moving everything digitally and instantaneous transfers. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, is this something that you know people really need? <clears throat> Do they want to fund a brokerage account via a digital wallet? Uh, but it looks like they do. I mean, I mean, how many clients have used it and how much money has been transferred so far? So that is a good question. And we're happy to follow up as we release some of those stats in the near future. But yeah, I think from our internal project uh, perspective, as we've been tracking, I mean, listen, we're also learning, right? And that, that was my earlier point about at some point you have to put it in the real world and get consumers to use it. And then, you know, it's perpetual beta. Um, but I think the adoption that we've seen has definitely been uh, reaffirming of the initial uh, thesis. And then I think to your point about digital wallets, you know, we also started with Apple Pay for a specific reason. And, you know, three reasons, actually. One is at TD Ameritrade, we know that over 70% of our clients are active iOS consumers, right? So we believe in this notion of go where your consumers are. Gone are the days, you know, the the where the, you have to, you sit at your storefront, digital or physical, and expect for the consumer to come to you. In this new world order, the consumer expects you to come into their ecosystem, whichever one they are most comfortable with. So if majority of our clients are comfortable using Apple products and services, we're like, okay, we're going to start with where our consumers are. Second is the adoption of, you know, Apple Pay in North America is more prevalent than other wallets at, you know, at the moment. So that again was an important data point. 
And then the third is, you know, obviously there's, you know, it's always great to be a uh, pioneer, I suppose, but it's also daunting, you know, because you're kind of having to build a playbook. And I'm a pilot, and the analogy I often use is you're flying the plane while you're building the plane, uh, which is adventure on steroids. Uh, so, so, you know, we wanted to be very purposeful about it. And what we liked about Apple Pay was, you know, the sophistication of their encryption, their protocols, and just the hypersecurity and privacy that's built into Apple Pay, which gave us the confidence that we were doing right by our clients. Um, so those were the reasons that, you know, we started with Apple Pay, but, you know, we are, we're actively working with other partners including Google Wallet. And, and, and the other one is WeChat. Like, you know, we have a nascent but fast-growing business in Asia. And uh, WeChat is a big player, as you may know, in that ecosystem. And, you know, we've been one of the first U.S. financial services company to do uh, some really cool and bespoke partnership announcements with WeChat just in the last year. And WeChat Pay, it, it's actually unfathomable. When I go to China, I'm like the only loser walking around with cash or like a ca plastic card to pay for mm -hmm. things because everything, exactly. everybody there is using their smartphones. Everything is like, you know, digital payments. So, you know, you know, so we also take those learnings and try to put that into our product development. So, so I think those were the reasons that helped us catalyze uh, this, you know, inherent problem in our industry. But again, you know, we started with Apple Pay, but so much to do and so much room to grow. It's interesting that 70% of your clients use iOS. Why, why do you think that is? And what does that say about your clients? I, I, I you know, this is my personal speculation. I just think, I think it's, I think it's the ubiquity of, you know, the brand and the product in North America. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm sure there are many of your listeners who are Android clients. So I want to definitely assure them we pay just as much uh, attention to Android. And one of my key teammates on my team who actually worked and was my lead on the Apple Pay product is actually a diehard Android user. So she's always looking out for the Android users. But, you know, I think for us, you know, I, I think part of it might be demographic. Uh, of our client segments, and part of it might just be driven by, you know, Apple's brand and ubiquity in, uh, you know, North America. I find those things interesting. I mean, I've got a technology background, but I do a lot of work in, in, in I do a lot of reading in behavioral psychology and, and then, and also marketing and learning, you know, we're learning a lot more about consumer behavior and we're learning a lot of uh, tips, not tips, but we're learning a lot of indicators that you wouldn't expect that, that indicate what the consumer's behavior will be. So for example, if you said someone's an iOS user and they asked me what, what, what uh, broker dealer or what um, custodian they're most likely to custody with, I, I don't know if I would guess TD. It's just an interesting, it's an interesting correlation. Um, with the, the Android versus iOS, Android has 86% global market share, but in the US it's much closer. It's, it's more like 55, 45. So there's a lot more U.S. iOS users than there are globally. Oh, totally. Like in Asia, as I said, you know, and that's where I think exactly to your point, like we have to be very nimble and flexible uh, with our product development methodology as we're solving these problems. So, for example, you know, with our WeChat partnership, we actually built more for the Android experience because, you know, we were launching WeChat to a consumer base in Asia. And exactly to your point, Craig, it's a heavy Android market, right? So, so, so I think that again, validates, you know, kind of what I said earlier, which is 
I think gone are the days when you decide what's best for your consumer. And this is what I love about the sign of our times is, you know, brands are having to take direction from their consumers, which is the way it should be, right? It's like, you know, so you listen to the customer and, 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 and everything we do, whether it's the work we did with Apple Pay or, you know, I'll share some of the exciting work we've done with Amazon. It always starts with what is that problem? And then, you know, as part of the, is this a problem worth solving? That all is predicated on what are our clients telling us? So, you know, we spend a lot of time obsessing about what are we hearing in our calls? What is our, you know, uh, you know our uh, client experience surveys telling us? You know, we have opinion lab where clients can give us feedback on a daily ongoing basis. Like, you know, social platforms, you know, uh, one of the cool, thing my, well, cool, cool things my team and I get to do, which is one of my favorite parts of the job is we host these market drive events, which is part of our education offering. So, I think almost like every month we are in a big city. We were just in Chicago last Saturday where, you know, our experts uh, are go, you know, host these big education one day events and like hundreds and hundreds of people come and it's actually inspiring Craig, because here it is a full day Saturday. And, you know, the room is jam packed with, you know, 500 plus people who are, absolutely committed to this notion of lifelong learning and becoming better investors. And, you know, so my team and I try to attend every one of those, partly, you know, to share with clients the new things that we're launching that they should use and can use to make their experience better. But the other way we leverage that those events is almost like market testing. So, you know, a, a couple months a couple months ago, we were in Anaheim um, for a market drive event. And, you know, we had invited a lot of our clients who are, who are um, you know, Asian and also use WeChat regularly to communicate with their families in Asia. And we literally sat down with them for like hours. And we actually even invited some of our partners from WeChat from China to sit down with us with our clients. And we talked to our clients saying, listen, these are the problems we want to solve, you know, working with WeChat. Are these problems that matter to you? What are we missing? Here's how we're thinking the solution would render. What do you think? Like, we kind of laid it all out. And they were very much part of the validating the problem or even surfacing new irritants and giving us feedback on how to design the solution. And, you know, that to me is so important this day and age that you can't lock yourselves in a lab somewhere and try to like concoct something and say, oh, here, use it. You really have to start with what's the problem and listening to that consumer on an ongoing basis. And I think that's what enables you to then deliver something that's a balance of utility and delight. So you're adding value, but you're also doing it in this new, elegant, and delightful manner. Sunaina, every time you say delight, it reminds me of uh, Kawasaki, who he loves, oh, to, really? <laughs> he loves to talk about uh, delighting your clients. And so this, uh, it's, whenever you say that, it's, it's very rare you hear that anymore, that people, you know, I, I, I try to, whenever I'm talking to my clients, we do a lot of work with advisor experience and client experience for broker dealers and asset managers. And I always try to talk about, can you create an elegant experience? Can you create a delightful experience? And what did you just, you just said something, I was taking notes and I got distracted. You said that it was the balance of, of something in delight. What was, the, what was the other part of that? Oh, 
utility and delight. Um, at the end of the day, it has to have a purpose. It has to solve a problem. It has to add a utility to your life, but that utility doesn't have to be rendered in a boring way. It can be, you know, as you said, delightful. One of the examples I love to share with people who are like, well, but we're in Spencer, right? I'm like, so why can't we be delightful? Like, you know, I live in the Valley and I'm sure, you know, you like, you know, like, the conversations at cocktail parties and the amount of time people spend bragging or raving about their nets or their Amazon ring mm -hmm. amuses me, but also reminds me that, hey, if you can take something very boring and innocuous like a thermostat or a doorbell and turn it into this sexy experience that people are nerding out at like a cocktail party, guess what? there's a lot of room for us to add delight in financial services and in investing. And, you know, so, so I always try to remind people who are maybe a little bit, eh, but we're in Finster, we can't do all those things. I'm like, yes, you can. If you can turn a third of that into a conversation uh, that lights up a party, you can do a lot in our business, especially with education and gamification and just a rich amount of information that we have to offer to our clients, but do it in, you know, bespoke and elegant and just delightful ways. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Allow me to just break in on this thought-provoking interview that I'm doing for a word from our sponsors. I want to take a little break from this episode to talk to you about one of my favorite sponsors, the Invest in Others Foundation. Invest in Others is a nonprofit. You can find them at investinothers.org. And they look to raise money and give out awards to charities that are sponsored by financial advisors. So it's financial advisors, uh, favorite charities, charities that they spend a lot of time supporting. So Invest in Others looks to get sponsorships from the industry and funnel that money to advisors' favorite charities. I really like this, this charity uh, and this nonprofit. I think you should take a look at it. Again, investinothers.org. They've got a couple other programs. One is a Grants for Good program. Uh, again, delivering money to different needy organizations and needy groups. They're also starting a corporate awards program, which is going to be a little bit different, but still within the industry. Uh, another way for financial services, uh, wealth management corporations to help uh, donate money to people in need. So I really like Invest in Others. I think you should take a look at it. Invest in Others. Let me spell this for you. I-N-V-E-S-T-I-N-O-T-H-E-R-S dot O. RG. I wanted to get back to something you just mentioned about meeting with WeChat users. Can you share any of the problems that they brought up to you about how they're using financial services through WeChat and how TD could make those better? Um, so one of our focal areas for our WeChat experience, and, you know, it's available, some of it is available now. So I encourage you or your users, you know, to check out WeChat and, you know, connect with TD Ameritrade on WeChat. We're available to clients in Hong Kong, in the United States, in the United States, and, you know, soon to come in other uh, parts of Asia as well. So our um, WeChat experience, and, and, you know, maybe just a precursor for those who might be new to WeChat, I often tell people if, you know, if you could create a super app that was a combination of um, Facebook and Twitter and Amazon and Instagram and even a little bit of YouTube all put together, that would almost render WeChat for you. Because, you know, WeChat is that central super app 
that consumers go to where they can connect with people, they can consume content, but they can also conduct commerce all packaged in one super app. Um, and, and, you know, uh, the scale is just, you know, uh, amazing. There are, I believe, over 1 billion monthly active users on WeChat today. And an average WeChat user spends upwards of four hours a day on WeChat, um, which any product owner would be envious of. <laughs> um, and the other thing about WeChat that's really cool is they're part of Tencent which many people don't know is one of the world's biggest, you know, gaming company, right? Like they are the, they're, they're the name behind games, like our household names to us, like even Fortnite, right? Sure. So one of the things that we've been able to do with WeChat is really bring that gamification prowess to financial education and content. So if you connect with us on WeChat, what you'll find is we have a, we have a rich repository of education content in all kinds of formats, from written to video to audio. Um, but the way people consume it and want it rendered on WeChat is really fascinating. Like I'll give you an example of something we're doing. So within WeChat, there's a function called Shake. And what that means is you shake your phone, Android, or iOS, and WeChat helps you discover people that are around you, content that's you know relevant at that point, um, or just just you know it, it's a mechanism for discovery. But it's done in a cool way of shaking your phone versus tapping around, right? So when consumers come to TD Ameritrade's education mini program within WeChat. And let's say Craig comes in and, you know, we, because we don't know him yet, we initially show him a video about futures and you shake your phone. Okay. You don't want to watch that. Now we give you a video about ETFs. You shake your phone. Okay. You don't want to watch that. Then we give you a video about, let's say, you know, um, uh, volatility and you watch it. And then we give you another video about volatility and you watch it as well. So now we, now we are also starting to learn um, you know, personalization and patterns that are important to Craig that would be different than what might be important to Sinena. But we're doing it in a way that's fun and just, I'm sorry to use it again, delightful and a little bit different. And it has that gamification characteristic built into it. So that would be an example of how we're really, you know, harnessing the power of a partnership and kind of leaning into their strengths to make something that we are good at, you know, even better. I love that. That's uh, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Speaking of the the Thanks. education, the financial education, do you, do you have any statistics on how many of your your consumers, the end consumers, are using your educational tools and educational content? Yeah. I mean, education is, I would say, the crown jewel of, you know, what TD Ameritrade brings to the marketplace. And, you know, that was one of the reasons why it was, you know, I think about this time last year, we made a huge strategic decision to take our education that was often behind paywalls and truly democratize it. Because, you know, as an organization, we also believe, you know, in that you know, thesis of what we talked about, breaking down barriers and education is the silver bullet. So why hide it? Let's just put it out there for any and every consumer to use it, whether a TDA client or not, um, but do it in a way that's also modernized and more, you know, digestible 
So like, you know, my 22 year old brother who just finally, you know, graduated and got his first job is now hearing from my parents about, you know, retirement savings accounts. And he's like, whatever. Right. But here's the thing. He's not going to sit down and read a pamphlet or like, you know, a 22 page PDF. What he's going to do is he wants a snackable video he can consume on, you know, his ecosystem of choice whether that's WeChat or Apple or through his Alexa device, right? Like he wants that same information, that same level of quality, but in more snackable packages. So I think, you know, that's kind of been our focal point in really taking education. And we found the adoption from our clients in Asia and in the U.S., you know, to be very validating. Now in Asia, what we're learning is the content that they really crave because, you know, it's nobody else is offering the same with the same I would say credibility um, and brand prowess like TD Ameritrade is some of the basic content right but what we're also learning is they're very fast learners and they go from learning about the basics of the stock market stock market but then wanting to learn about futures and forex and with the other thing we're also seeing is you know an educated client is a more engaged and confident clients. So we are able to see patterns that the more they consume our education, the more active and engaged they are uh, in their accounts. So, you know, that's a good correlation. That's an excellent correlation. You And you used another- well, a business person, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, if you can find ways to get your, your customers more engaged and more active, in, especially in a brokerage account where you're, it's transaction-based, that's always a good thing. Yeah, but I think it's, again, that point about breaking down barriers, right? It's like people, like, you know, people want to take charge of their financial, you know, uh, futures. Like nobody that you talk to is going to say, no, I don't want a better, more secure financial future. Everybody does. But, you know, it's this inherent or perceived, you know, um, lack of knowledge, or it's too complicated. Like, you know, yeah, I live in the Valley. I'm surrounded by some of the smartest minds. And sometimes I'm, you know, astounding. I'm talking to some of the smartest engineers that I know who are probably building something that will change our lives in a few years. But you talk to them about investing in the capital markets. Like, oh, well, that's too complicated. I'm like, stop. Like, you're working on technologies that is barely fathomable to most people, but the capital markets are daunting to you. But then you put something like education in front of them and in a format that is appealing and accessible and relevant to them. And they're like, oh, yeah, I can do this. And that's one of my favorite things, even when I go to market drive events, is watching that client go from, oh, I don't know if I can do this, to, yeah, I can do this. I feel confident. I feel informed. And I think that is, you know, the, the, the moment of delight for us as, you know, as you can attest to product creators and problem solvers. With these, this engagement, uh, increasing engagement in your clients' accounts, how do you transfer this type of educational content and this type of engagement to your uh, advisor customers? Yeah, so one of the things that the Tiger team uh, that we do at TD Ameritrade is when we go, when we look at those problem statements, we make sure that we are solving problems, obviously, that are painkillers, but also ones that extend to, you know, as I tell my team, create as much as a big tent effect as you can, right? So, you know, so whether you're active traders or our retail clients or advisors or advisor clients, like Apple Pay is a great example, right? That is 
you everybody wants to make funding into their accounts easy right so you know so when we saw when we picked those problems that's a key point i'll maybe illustrate that point through an example so when we did our partnership with amazon you know around really taking advantage of this you know uh momentum that we're seeing in terms of voice commerce you know, we started with e-commerce, we moved to mobile commerce, and, uh, you know, our thesis is that given the confluence of higher order AI and ML and, you know, voice-enabled devices, that, you know, voice commerce is going to start to be the big next, next thing. And also from an experience perspective, people are, you know, want things that are no longer, like something that is screenless and something that's untethered where, you know, I could have my hands in the cookie dough baking cookies with my kid and I could still talk to Alexa and find out what I need to know without having a phone in front of me all the time. So as we're gauging that, we were really excited about how do we again take the power of, you know, market information, market education, and even the ability to, you know, transact into this new ecosystem. And as we were working with Amazon, we not only were thinking about the product design in, you know, in respect to our retail clients, but at the link event, uh, not this year, last year, I sat down with, you know, our, our advisors uh, and our advisor clients, and we did a similar exercise, right? Like, you know, tell me about a day in the life of an advisor, right? Tell me where, where we can make things efficient. Tell me if you could use a voice-powered device like, you know, Alexa or Google Home or one of the others, what would add the most utility for you? And that D word that I won't say, <laughs> you know, so we really solicited opinions from them. And then, you know, very quickly, we were able to like start to put that into action. And at this year's link, it was really awesome to see our president, Tom Nally, and my colleague, Danny Fava, you know, unveil it to the advisor community, what we also unveiled to our retail clients, which is, you you know, this on-demand access to information and bespoke content from TD Ameritrade, all activated, you know, via voice and through an Alexa-powered device. Um, so I think, you know, that's an example of where we really look at how we can be, you know, make, make using these technologies to add value to all our client segments and all our business groups. And, you know, the Alexa piece is also near and dear to me, you know, from an accessibility perspective. You know, we forget that the decade of phenomenal technological advances that we have enjoyed in our lives has also actually left a lot of people behind, right? You think of people with visual impairments or dexterity issues. And as the U.S. demographics gets older, we will see more of that, you know, with chronic illness or dexterity issues, the way people use their phones, it's not going to be perpetual. And they're going to want new ecosystems to maintain that lifestyle and access to information and communication. And, you know, to me, voice is very inspiring. And, you know, I've had our clients and even some of our associates who've written to me or come to me and share how, you know, we have a we have an associate uh, at TD Ameritrade who's visually impaired, and you know one of our star employees. And you know he was telling me how accessing, like you know, he comes into the office accessing market information every day. You know he has to take extra a few extra many extra steps to get access to the same information than you and I would. But now he's like, Snaina, I get it in split seconds. All I have to do is say, you know, Alexa, you know, give me the market update from TD Ameritrade Network, right? Or tell me what earnings will be coming out today. And he's like, you know, it has 
you know, and, and you know, listening to those stories reminds you again about breaking down barriers, not just for the segments we often think of, but also helping us bring along people that, you know, we may have left, like technology may have left behind, you know, uh, along the way uh, and kind of really democratizing uh, the access and that experience. That is awesome. I love that. And you can say the D word as much as you want. Don't be afraid. <laughs> delight, delight, delight. Oh. Oh, I said it three times. Delight, delight, delight. There you go. I got it out of my system. <laughs> Good. All right, now we can go on. So I wanted to shift gears um, as we're getting towards the end of our time together and, and go into some questions more about, um, more about you and sort of your personality and, and how you see the world. So what, in the past few years, what's become more important to you in your personal life? So I say two things, but I'll start with the the, the big one, quote unquote, me time. Um, and, and, you know, and what I mean by that is, you know, it, sometimes people find it hard to believe, but inherently I am a very deep introvert and shy person. I put on a good game face for like, you know, 18 hours a day. But, you know, there I have learned that I, if with discipline, need a set of hours every day to myself, you know, it's almost like I'm like a device that I have to recharge myself. And I have found that when I don't, you know, intentionally and with discipline, give myself that time each day, that it just kind of messes up the equilibrium. And, you know, and, and so, you know, I'm very disciplined about that now more than, and it can happen in different ways. Like it could just be, you know, those two hours I'm sitting in a flight where I've got my headphones, I'm listening to music or a book, but it's just something where you just need more introspective reflection and time for yourself. And I've found that I've become much more intentional, but also much more protective of that me time. What is something that you personally believe in that other people might think is crazy? <laughs> well, where do I start? No, I'm just <laughs> well, I mean, the one that maybe I'll share because, you know, we've been talking about innovation and how you bring these things to life is, you know, and it's advice I actually got from a good um, friend and mentor of mine who's a serial entrepreneur in the Valley kind of saying, you know, if you are not getting laughed out or yelled out of a room, then your idea is not big enough or your problem statement that you're solving isn't big enough, right? And it kind of just enforces that, you know, that thinking of chase after the most gnarly problem statement because often nobody else is doing it, right? So you kind of have a green field and B, therein lies that ability to maximize utility and delight uh, because it's been left alone and people have been ignoring it. And we've seen, you know, a lot of startups use that thesis and, you know, build unicorns out of it. So, you know, it seems like a little contrarian because oftentimes in the world of innovation, it's like, yeah, you know, low hanging fruit, which I get, but, you know, I think this notion of, and, and trust me, I get laughed out or yelled out of many a room, many a times. So, but now I take it as a badge of honor versus sulking in it. <laughs> As you, as you should take that as a badge of honor. What? Who do you think of when you hear the word successful? Well, we're getting deep here. <laughs> and one of the things I believe when it, you know, the 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 definite. I, I think there used to be this punch list of what success meant like. And one of the things I like about I don't know the the recent generational shift is everybody kind of feels empowered to define their version of success almost. And um, I would say my early memories and most 
you know, the person I continue to look up to to this day um, as somebody that I want to be and regard as successful, it would be my granddad and my father. So my grandfather on my father's side and my father, they were, they were both immigrants. My grandfather immigrated, you know, multiple times, either because of choice and sometimes because of circumstances that, you know, required him to take him and his family and his entire life and uproot it and move to somewhere safe and secure. And, and, and each time, you know, the stories I've heard, like, you know, and, and the success I've seen him build is, you know, it, you know, is it, 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 I'm awestruck and it reminds me on my toughest days that, you know, all the adversity they went through and the life that he created for his kids and subsequently my dad and his siblings for us that the adversary I face is, you know, an aorta of what they did. Uh, but it also reinforces in me this very strong desire of making sure that, you know, you're living your life in a way that you're making a dent um, and that you're paying it forward. So maybe more than uh, you wanted to hear, but I would say my grandfather and my father. It's never too much. I always want to hear more. <laughs> <laughs> you go on as, as much as you want and you know, <laughs> talk about um how people had it harder earlier it's hard for kids to understand and i know i used to tell them my my kids my three daughters uh, how tough things were when they were little i would tell them you know well, when i i would sort of exaggerate a little bit and say yeah well my you know Grandma and grandpa made me work in the factory in the morning before school, and I had to walk to school uphill both ways in the snow. It was terrible. <laughs> and then you think they, you know, they go, wow. You know, then they kind of appreciate what they have now. But then, then the little, uh, they're a little sneaky. They called my mother and said, Grandma, why did you make Daddy work in the factory in the morning? And she said, what? What are you talking about? So they, they, bust, they busted me. Why didn't they have shoes? They said, no, they busted me. <laughs> So you got to be careful. You're spreading a little fake news there. Yeah, you got when, you, when, you, when your kids get old enough to uh, to call you out on that stuff. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I think there's something special about the immigrant journey, and I know, you know, in all in all of our, you know, we can all trace back at some point. I, for me, it's just more recent, and and I consider myself an immigrant in my own right because I chose to move from Canada where I grew up now to the United States. Um, but I think there's something to be said about that, you know, immigrant journey and how it defines you, but also shapes you. Um, so, you know, I, I try to, you know, I try to, you know, I think to your point that I was watching an interesting Twitter debate uh, just yesterday about how, you know, the, the level of comfort and excess that's in our lives today, like, how do we find a way to almost like deprive ourselves a little to remind us that this abundance is not normal. And there was this debate going on about, you know, cold showers and, you know, intermittent fasting. It was a very Silicon Valley debate, as you can tell. But I thought there was something interesting in that thesis that, you know, do we ever put ourselves through any, um, you know, uh, self, you know, do we deprive our, ourselves of anything? Do we try to put ourselves through any pain anymore? Because, or is everything just expected to be abundance and comfort? Um, so I just thought that was an interesting Twitter debate. It is interesting. And some of it is, is it actually has some substance, especially when it comes to fasting, which is something I, I, I had to do for just medical reasons. For, for example, for a test, I had to fast for 24 hours recently. And I actually felt great the next day. And I thought, this is something that uh, has benefit. And do some reading, you realize that there is some medical benefits to intermittent fasting. I've listened to some other podcasts about that. And some people get a little extreme about it. They fast for three days. That's a little much for me. But um, there, there is some benefits to these things. And another 
thing related to children and getting them to understand is, is I find sports and other activities that can install a bit of discipline in them can help them kind of understand and how to, how to get over uh, parts of your life when times are a little tough. If you have that discipline in your life, it, it helps you. Totally. And yes, um, uh, you know, the fasting thing, I, I'm a proponent. I've been intermittent fasting for a couple of years now. I usually do the um, you know, the 16 hours or the 18 hours one. And initially it just started because, you know, I would just forget to eat or I would just get so caught up in what I was doing. But then I was like, oh, now there's a methodology I can apply to it. So I definitely, and I find the same benefits that you've said is actually, you know, it's hard maybe when people get started, but it's actually really helps with just focus and discipline. And, and I also just find it fascinating how many hours we spend as humans thinking about food, preparing food, consuming food, talking about food, you know, it, it's just, and I know that's kind of the thesis behind Soylent, right? So I just find this is both efficient and, and now there's apparent benefits to it. So I'll own it. <laughs> Did you know that soil and green is people? It's people. Oh, geez, I know. I've heard. I've been educated on the genesis of that name. <laughs> Sorry, I, I said I had to say that. I'm a big movie buff. So in your travels throughout your career, what uh, what bad advice do you hear being given out most often? I mean, I think this notion of what is your five-year plan for your career? Or, you know, what job do you want to be in five years, right? I mean, it's, I think that's maybe kind of a carryover from the old school management, which I don't think is appropriate for this day and age. Again, going back to the start of our conversation about see how much the world is changing and how quickly it's changing. Like, I, you know, you know and, and how do I know, you know, I mean, here's the interesting thing. I was, I was kind of tracking this back and doing some self-reflection recently. And I would say between my time at TD and TD Ameritrade, the last 12, 14 years or so of I think the 15 assignments or whatever I've had, I think like 12 of them I was like the first person to have it. Like I, I vividly remember writing 12 of my own job descriptions because it was a brand new job, including the one I'm in right now. And that to me is the sign that you don't really know, like the jobs of the future and what I'm going to be doing in five years doesn't necessarily exist yet. So I find sometimes that question that people force upon either young graduates or, you know, career professionals uh, is just, I think it I think it sends people down a rabbit hole that's not productive. Instead, you know, my, the guidance I have found most helpful for my mentors is, you know, chase competencies, chase experiences. Because those things you can apply to whatever that job might end up being or wherever your career might take you, you know, and, and also that way it shelters you from this you know, notion of ego and chasing titles and status, which can disappear in an instant, but the experiences and the competencies, no one can ever take away. Um, so, you know, I try to guide people more that way. Uh, and, and I think the last one, which actually I'm kind of, I, I have to give credit to our CEO because he uh, speaks about it very eloquently is do the thing you're uniquely qualified to, right? Understand where and how you can maximize your impact and do the things you are quali most qualified to, and the rest, find a way to hire other people who are better than you to take it on or delegate or, you know, um, federate, but stick to the ways that you can maximize, you know, your, um, you know, your value to your team and to your organization. So you flipped my question on its head. Um, uh, that's that's, uh, that's um, linguistic jujitsu, Sunaina. <laughs> oh, 
you're on to me. Very good. The so let's only ask one or two final questions. What sure. is your this this one could be a long one, so I apologize. I should have asked it earlier. We all have successes and failures, and they say that you learn more from your failures than your successes. So what failure have you had in your career that you learned the most from? First of all, I humbly attest I have had way, way, way lots of failures. And I also completely attest to your point that I have grown and learned most from my failures. Sometimes you don't even remember your successes. Isn't that the funny thing? Like we are also Mm -hmm. obsessed about succeeding and acing, but you know, like even growing up, like I don't remember all the A pluses I got, but you better believe I remember that one B that I got on that exam. And to this day, like, you know, I feel this surge of emotion. You know what I mean? Um, So, and I think it's the the same from your career perspective. So can I maybe pivot that a little bit to kind of maybe share the failure that's most defined me as a person and who I am? Of course. Okay. So it's not something, you know, it's when I was younger, way younger. So as I attested to, you know, kind of shared earlier, um, inherently, I am a very shy, introverted person. And those who know me may sometimes go, what? But I definitely do put on a really good game face. But that has been a very hard journey for me. Like as a kid, you know, I was not very social, wouldn't, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it was just really hard. And one of the best things that, again, my dad and my grandfather did for me was at, a, I think it was like seven or eight, they put me in debate. And like, it was like, literally threw me into the deep end, right? Like, you know, and I remember my first few debates where I, and I was part of a team. So it was my first back to your sports piece. Now I, this, you know, the sports sense of belonging and being part of something greater than you. And, but at the same time, this lack of I was not able to contribute because I, I they would put me on stage and I would just stand there frozen maybe I'd say one or two words but you know each time I they kept putting me back they kept putting me back on the team and it, and, and I don't say it lightly it has defined me who I am and it literally changed my life and I've stuck through debate through college and high school and grad school and because what it taught me was how to think on your feet, how to articulate your thoughts, how to communicate your thoughts, but also how to, you know, you know, kind of harness that nervous energy and lack of confidence into a, you know, hopefully a confident person who can relay their message. Um, And just so many benefits. Like now I've become a proponent of anytime any of my friends have kids, I'm like, you got to get that kid into a debate class. And they're like, this kid can barely like, you know, feed and take care of themselves. So maybe give it a couple of years. But, you know, that I would say is I learned. And trust me, that was like years of failures again and again. And it, you know, but it, you know, it, it, it made me who I am. And it, you know, helped me become, you know, um, the, the team player I am today. And, you know, hopefully a professional. <laughs> I think so. You remind me of Anne Mura Ko, who's a... a, a yes. And, and she, she was called the most powerful woman in startups because she also started out in the debate team in high school. And that was sort of a defining experience for her, you know, getting out of, coming out of her shell. So you, you remind me of her. Yes. Yes. I've, I've heard her share that. And I find that very relatable. And, and I think there's many, many, many other people who've had those same benefits. Um, and, you know, I, I you know, I'm, well, debate might not be the same level sports as other varsity sports. I do put it at, at that level because I think it just teaches you so many, you know, real lessons that you can use through life. Absolutely. And final question. 
what uh, yeah. book, what book or books have you gifted most often? Sure. I think the one that, you know, I, I so the two that I've been um, gifting to people, but the one I'll maybe zone in on is I am a biography buff. Um, so I've recently been gifting and um, people the book Shoe Dog, which is the biography of Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. You know, it, it, and, and, you know, a, a quick reference, like, so when I started school at Stanford, you know, I, I got that book and I was like, oh, of course, like, you know, because you know, the business school is named the nice school. And I'm like, oh, sure. Like, you know, that's why they gave us the book. And I was like, ah, I'm not really a sports person, Nike. And, you know, I literally made the mistake of judging a book by its cover. And I kind of put it aside. And then I think one weekend, I kind of found it on my table. And it was like, rainy San Francisco weekend. And I just started reading it. And I just could not put it down. And, and then I, you know, scolded myself for kind of, you know, putting it aside and not reading it sooner. But it, there's just so many things in it relevant to the work we do. Just, you know, the thing I tell people is the Tiger team isn't about this notion of, you know, innovation or chasing shiny object. It's a mindset. It's a muscle memory. And the thing I take away from this book, and it's this very eloquent, you know, quote in the book is, you know, it's about solving problems. It's about making a dent. It's about making people's life just a little bit better. And if you want to call that, call, and, and you'll feel nice line is if that makes me a businessman, so be it. If that's innovation, so be it. But the inherent purpose is, you know, not innovation for innovation, but it's about, you know, kind of making that dent, having a purpose. Um, and, you know, back to what we were saying, you know, offering kind of utility, the quote, if people want to, you know, Google it, it, it starts with, you know, when you make something, when you improve something, when you deliver something, when you add some new thing or service to the lives of strangers, making them happier or healthier or safer or better. And when you do it all crisply and efficiently and smartly, the way everything should be done, but so, but so seldom is, you're participating more fully in the whole grand human drama more than simply alive, you're helping others to live more fully. And if that's business, all right, call me a businessman. And every time I read it, it still gives me goosebumps. And the book is just filled with so much relevant wisdom. And I encourage your readers, if they haven't read it, to definitely check it out. And on that note, you've, made, you've created the perfect ending for this podcast. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I feel you're right. We could nerd out for hours. And I also thank you for your patience, as you can tell, and hopefully your listeners can tell. I like my job just a wee bit. Like, I'm a little bit obsessed with what I do. So mm -hmm. hopefully my exuberance comes across in the right way. <laughs> it absolutely does. Uh, I, I can say, as, as you just said, we could, we could talk for hours. We'll have to schedule another uh, call to go into some of these other topics. And I'm looking forward to seeing all the great new things that TD is going to be building. Uh, the next link. Excellent. Thank you, Craig, and all the best to you with your uh, podcast. Thank you, Sunay. I really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Hey, everyone. It's Craig again. Just a few quick items before we go. If you like this episode, please give it a five-star review on iTunes. I would very much appreciate it. And remember to check out the show notes for links to everything we talked about on this episode. 
For more information on wealth management technology, you can read my Wealth Management Today blog at wmtoday.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week.